This is a call for us to move from the brink to step into what God has already begun among all of us in what in 905 they're calling this unique God season. If you get your Bible this morning, I'd love you here and all other places and venues to turn this morning to Joshua chapter 5. Virtually or physically, we're good either way. And that's where we'll sort of begin our conversation. If you've been with us for this whole run, let me remind you where we are in the narrative. Finally, the people of God are in the promised land. Generations, don't forget this, generations of hope. Generations, decades, hundreds of years of dreams, of prayer, of wondering and wandering. Multiple lives made up both of doubt and faith and hope now create this instant we get to read. This mosaic, this this moment. That new life, this moment of things hoped for and not seen, now are experienced and seen. Now I want to start and remind everyone this morning that God does not waste anything. God does not even waste our mistakes. As we now sit with the people of God in the promised land, now facing Jericho, let me stop before we get into this story and remind you this morning of what God has already done in his people Was the 40 years of wandering before they entered the promised land a complete loss? And the answer, of course, is no. Because out of that disobedience, God had been working in the hearts of those who had died and this generation that now came into the promised land. See, almost all great moves of God come after a place of testing. They come after a place of desert. They come after a place of lack. For in places of desert and in places of lack, then all things are stripped away. And what's stripped away from the people of God? Self-sufficiency and the personal ability that they believed would change the world. It is now replaced by reliance. And right there, when God strips his own people away of reliance, self-reliance, there are the greatest seeds of God's moves always found. Let me read out of Deuteronomy 8.2. Let me just read it to you. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you, all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Hear this this morning as we are reflecting on God's move among us and we're asking what God has to continue to do among us as we search for him. He says that the very beginning of his move for God's people in this generation was not joy, it was not a peak, it was not an amazing religious experience. No, no, it was desert. 
God brought his people into the wilderness to test them. Why? Because he had to deal with their motives. Because at the root of all the decisions we make are our motives. He causes them to be humbled. He causes them to look to his hand moment by moment. See, this is what already happens and always happens before a real move of God. This type of place and space pushes you into a place of renewal or death. It pushes a whole people into a place to be genuinely in a place of revival. This is where awakening, revival, renewal, the whole understanding begins. It always begins when God comes unbelievably close and then he begins to what? Deal with our motives, strip away self-reliance, humble us, not humiliate us, and then we begin to realize that our innate power is not enough to change the situations in front of us. God says, I will take your disobedience in the wilderness, but I will prepare you for one of the greatest moves I have ever done. Now God moves them and that generation dies and their children and grandchildren now move into the promised land. They had just seen God split the Jordan River at its height. And now this new nation goes inland. And again, as we've been finding out through the whole month of March, it is marked by the unnatural. It is marked by the unusual. This has not been mundane. This has not been boring. This has not been business as usual. See, this is more. This has become a God season. This is when God is working fully around and and before and in and after. You cannot help but sense the heavy presence of God. So now we come through the Jordan, into the promised land, and they're facing Jericho. Now, if you read all of chapter 5 in Joshua, a lot happens. Here's the first thing that happens. Every single boy and male gets circumcised in one day. Wow. We're talking about 1.3 million people. That's a lot of boys, a lot of pain, a lot of recovery. I'm not going to preach about it. Just think about it. Okay. So you have all these males who get circumcised. Why? Because this generation had not taken the mark of their faith. Now, as they take the mark of their faith, it also says in chapter five that the enemies of God had actually started gathering and instead of running at the Israelites and attacking them, their hearts melted with fear because God was with them and they begin to run. Now, in the middle of chapter 5, verse 9, there is this little verse that is so significant to what God is going to speak to us today. So we're out of the desert, we're out of the wilderness, and it says in Joshua 5, 9, these words, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today, today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And you go, well, John, what's so significant? The word reproach is an old word. The word we use today is shame. God comes and says to his whole nation, today I am removing shame from all of you now. Now the question is, well, what shame is hanging over the heads of these people, this whole nation? And by the way, John, what's really shame anyways? Because guilt and shame always get confused. Well, shame means disgrace. Shame means you're an embarrassment or you feel like one. Shame is when one feels they've been discredited 
or humiliated. It is the feeling of unworthiness, even though you are worthy. It is a state of disgrace. It is a state of regret. It can even be infamy. So here's the question this morning. The people of God obviously have shame over all their heads. So the question is, well, what's the shame? Well, Moses, when he was alive, had a very serious conversation with God. And he was very concerned about God getting them into the promised land. Not just because they wanted to be in the promised land. No, no. Moses was saying to God, if you don't get us into the promised land, your name is at stake. Let me read out of Deuteronomy 9.28. It says this, and this is mid-conversation. Otherwise, the country, Egypt, from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land, he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness. See, here's what's happening. For 40 years, the Egyptians and other nations were laughing at the people saying, oh, yes, your God split the Red Sea, true, but he actually hates you. He doesn't love you. He's actually brought you out not to honor you or make you his children. No, he has brought you out to kill you. And Moses said, if you, God, don't get us into this new work, don't you understand that all the nations will mock you and will actually believe you are not a God of love. You are a God of selfish thuggery. And so Moses says, you got to get us in. And so now at this moment, I want you to catch the power of this. This was 600 years in prayer. They are now entering into the promised land. The men are circumcised. And at this moment, God through Joshua declares, the shame that you have lived with for 40 years, it's done. He says, you are no longer slaves. The God you follow is real. The God you follow is moving. And what he promises, he always does. You are not wandering anymore. You are not refugees anymore. You are not under judgment anymore. You are not those people anymore. You are not just a people anymore. I, God, say because of my work, you are worthy. You are not an embarrassment. I have proven and I have affirmed you. I have humbled you but not humiliated you. You are not unworthy, but you are worthy because of me. You are graced, you are welcomed, and your bad name uh, is now removed. Your ill repute is now replaced with my renown. Your loss of rights is replaced by justice, truth, and presence. Basically, God is saying, oh, my people, oh, my people, I am a God of love. And so now I, because I'm the only one who can do this, I roll away. I replace your history, and I replace your identity that was marked by Egypt and wilderness with me in the promised land. Oh, step in, oh people of God, for this day I declare you new. You see the power when a whole generation of people think that they are marked and their name is shame, that God himself shows up and says, it is no longer so. So God moves them from wilderness into the promised land. He deals with the core identity issue that would keep them down, that will continue to oppress them. And then midway through the passage, the story narrows. It narrows from the whole people of God. It narrows from all the enemies they're facing, 
All the obstacles in front of them. It narrows down even from the promised land to a personal encounter between Joshua and his God. We don't know what time it is when we read this. We don't know if it's day or night. All we know is that God's chosen leader, this man of God, this great strategic leader, this military veteran, this one, now listen this morning, this one person who knew God more than any person living on the face of the earth at that moment was suddenly, unexpectedly caught off guard. Turn your Bibles to Joshua 5.13. As Joshua is sitting looking at the first significant problem in front of him, as he's looking at Jericho, this fortified city at the mouth of the promised land. I'm sure he's thinking about what should come next. At that moment, something unexpected happens. Verse 13 reads like this, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. There suddenly for Joshua was a presence you know that feeling when you're not alone, but you think you're alone? I've shared this before, how my kids wake me up and freak me out. You know, Emma, daddy, right, you know? It's that moment where you're not sure if someone is in the room. Suddenly, he has that feeling. His hair goes up on the back of his head, and he turns, and there is a man right there. This is no imagination. This is no shadow. There is a man standing in front of him. It's like he appeared out of thin air, but the situation worsens. This man is not only looming over him, the man is armed, but it's even worse than that. He is not just armed, his sword is drawn. I'm sure Joshua is thinking, is this an ambush? Am I about to be murdered? Would this man raise this sword and strike me down where I sit? I'm sure the adrenaline was coursing through his veins. I'm sure Joshua was trying to reach for his own weapon. His experience is marked by nothing less than surprise and, and shock and astonishment. He sits, he's caught unaware. But this man is a serious leader. This man has seen combat and this man knows his God. So this man does something that most of us, I know I would not do, he does. He stands. He stands and he walks towards this man. And he looks him in the eyes and asks him a very direct, blunt question Joshua went up to him. I, I don't want you to miss this. The image here is he's sitting looking at Jericho. Suddenly this very large armed man is here. He's caught unawares. He stands up and he walks right over to the armed man who could strike him dead. And he says, are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? Are you one of my people? Are you Hebrew? Or are you one from Jericho or somewhere else? Are you here to kill me? Are you an assassin? Now, the answer actually is even more interesting and unexpected. Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. No, no, Joshua, you misunderstand. I don't work for you, nor do I work for those people you're spying on. No, no, I serve another. Do you not know that I am the commander? Do you not know that I am the captain, the prince? I am a prominent officer in the court of God himself. I work for the Lord Almighty. I work for the God of angel armies. See, God has two armies at this moment. He has all of his angel armies, and then he has Joshua's army. And now, shockingly, unexpectedly, both of God's leaders, the human one and the angelic one, who both work for Yahweh the king, meet and talk. How humbling for this great leader, I'm sure. 
to hear this angel's words. I don't serve you. I don't take my orders from you, nor do I take orders from anyone in Jericho. Oh, yes, we're on the same side, and we serve the same cause, and I've actually come to help you, but let's not confuse any relationship here. You may have significance on earth, but don't worry about it. I serve one, someone much more significant than you. Now, it's interesting if you notice the physicality of this. Joshua is sitting, and then he stands, robustly. He walks over to his enemy, that he thinks might be. He looks him in the eyes and suddenly he ends up next on his face. Verse 14, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for this place you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is an uh, unnatural thing for us to do in the West. We don't understand why this would take place, but we know from scripture that when God gets close, you immediately take off your shoes because the place where he is standing is becoming holy. See, God has sent his angel to him to show him first and foremost, once again, that God is with him. But notice this moment suddenly moves from natural to unnatural. This is holy. The very presence of God is here. This ground, this very geographical space and area has become sanctified and consecrated. It has become holy ground. Take off your sandals. Remove your shoes for this place, this moment. God is coming so near, dangerously near. This is nothing less than a sign that God, the creator of heaven and earth, is about to speak. So prepare yourself. Prepare yourself now. So immediately he does this. Now this is so similar to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. Some believe that this angel that's facing Joshua is not an angel, but God himself. No matter who it is, notice again something so important for the lesson we are trying to learn as a church. Notice the humility, church. Notice the understanding Joshua had that he first and foremost knew when God got close and what posture he took. But deeper than that, Joshua continually is taught that it will take an an external force under God himself to do the mighty act that Joshua was being commanded to do. Joshua is being reminded again that this is a God moment and a God move and no matter how strategic or powerful or in touch he was, if God did not act, Jericho would not fall. It says in Joshua 6.1, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites and no one went in and out and no one came in. So now we're facing Jericho the great walled city, the castle of an ancient form. Did the Israelites have battle experience? Sure they did. But did they have experience in siege? No. Did they have equipment to take down walls, battering rams? Absolutely not. They were refugees for 40 years. They didn't even have the best weapons. They did not have training how to take out walls, and that's exactly how God likes it. So then it says in verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with the king and all of its fighting men. Here again is the needed assurance Joshua needed. Here is the victory. And again, it should blow our North American minds far from plan or formula or victory. God says, look, this is a done deal by my hand. All you must do as my leader is to be led by a greater leader, which is God. 
Jericho is going to be God's first major gift, but it will not be at their hand. It will be not by might or power or army or planning. So God says, Joshua will meet with me. And Joshua says, what would you like to tell me? What's the strategic plan? How are we going to take the city out? And then God does the most bizarre thing you could ever tell a military commander. He says this, here's the major plan. Ready? Verse 3. I want you to march around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days. I'd be going, I'm sorry, Lord, um, anything else? No. I want you to get your Nikes on, and I want everyone to walk around the city. Don't siege it. Don't attack it. Don't raise your voice. Don't talk. Don't raise a weapon. Just walk. Just walk. Now, by the way, this would be magic if Joshua came up with the idea that this walking would somehow draw God down. But see, this is what permission-based ministry looks like in their day and our day. When God comes to his people and says, here's my promise and here's what you do, just obey and God will show up. If you actually start doing things without God's permission, then it becomes magic and Christian manipulation. And so Joshua is sitting here and God says, I want you to get all the people, including the army, and I want you to walk around for six days. And oh, there's a few more things, Joshua. He says, have seven priests carry seven uh, trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. So the only two things that are going to be prominent for six days, other than the people, is that you're going to have shofars, ram's horns, and you're going to have the ark. Now, let me remind you again, like we learned last week, what's the ark? The ark is the ark of the covenant. It is, it is a, a chest that was made from Acadia, work, uh, Acadia wood overlaid in gold. It had two large cherubim. And between them, there was this space called the mercy seat. And that was the place where God's throne in heaven touched earth. It's also the place where the high priest would sprinkle blood to cover the sins of the people. And so that's why it's called the place of forgiveness or covering. So this is actually where heaven and earth literally touch. God's throne in heaven is found on earth here. This is God's presence. It also carried the Ten Commandments. It was the wedding vows of God's people. It carried some manna in it to remind them about daily bread. And it had Aaron's rod in it to remind them about discipline. So you've got the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, and then you've got ram's horns. Now, ram's horns are interesting. And, and what were they for? Well, ram's horns were not instruments. They were used to remind people about the forgiveness of God and the presence of God. Do you remember when Isaac was about to be sacrificed by Abram? What was caught in the thicket? Anyone? A ram. Every time a ram's horn was blown, it was reminding the people of God that God provides, God's in charge, and he's a forgiving God. So I want you to catch this. All the people of God are called to do, walking around the most fortified city in the day, is to walk for six days, and they are supposed to blow ram's horns and have the presence of God there. Now let's not forget what we also learned last week. When Moses was alive, what did he say every single time the ark was carried? Numbers 10.35, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. And so this is an act of war. So Moses, uh, sorry, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. Verse four, on the seventh day, 
I want you to march around the city seven times with priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear (coughs) them sound a long blast with the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will, will go in, straight in. And so I want you to catch this this morning. He says, on the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times. You're going to get triple, uh, seven times your exercise. And then you yell, and everything's going to collapse. Now notice, the walls don't fall out. The walls don't fall in. They fall in upon themselves. And he says, the walls are literally going to pancake, and then you're going to go right in. Now, do you notice a pattern here? Seven days, seven times, seven priests. Why all of this? Because in the Bible, the number seven means completion. The number seven, God created the world in six days and the seventh day rested. See, again, what is this all pointing to? This is going to be a God act from beginning to middle to end. All the people of God need to do is agree and obey and God will do the rest. So here we go. God promises to clear a path. So verse six, so Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he had ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard, go ahead of the ark of the Lord. Advance. By the way, the word advance I found out this week is the same word as cross over. It's a direct connection to the Jordan. As they were called to trust God as they crossed in and over through the Jordan, so trust him again, he's about to do the same thing. So verse 8, when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, the ark of the Lord of the covenant followed them. The armed guards marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard followed the ark, and all this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, don't give a war cry, don't raise your voices, don't say a word until I tell you to shout, then shout. you got to understand the power of this. He is telling them they can't even intimidate the people of Jericho with their voices. Every single historian will tell you that one of the most scary things on the war, on the battlefield, is war cries. Why do you think bagpipes were invented? I'm Scottish. They aren't for their nice sound, in my opinion. They were meant to scare people on battlefields, which makes a lot of sense now. So, he's saying you may not even try to intimidate the people by your own voice. Be silent. You have no role in this. Don't touch my glory. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city and circling it once. The army returned to camp and spent the night there. That's it. They, they did their walk. They went home and they had manna. Or they had some new grapes because they were in the promised land. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. And they did this for six days. Now I want everyone here in auditorium being online, I want you to catch the power of this. For six days, they just obey. For six days, they participate in God's move. For six days, they do everything. And God does nothing. Nothing. See, one connect group that was preparing for this this morning, they were telling me this week that another pastor used the illustration of Tetris. Do you remember that game, Tetris? Where every time you won, another sort of layer would break down, right? Right? See, we as Christians want God to work like Tetris, that we walk around runts and then we see a little bit part of the wall fall down and we go, oh, God's with us. And we walk around. God doesn't do anything. So many people, even in this church, are doing this. This is your spiritual posture before God. 
Oh yeah, God, if you show up, I'll join you. This revival and renewal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just topple a little bit of the wall and then maybe I'll do this. But until you show up and give me a little shred of evidence that this is really happening, this is going to be my posture. Oh, God of heaven and earth, you better prove this and maybe I'll join. The people of God walk around one, two, three, four, five, six days. Zero evidence. Zero evidence. Nothing is happening. Why? Because this is a God thing and God always demands faith and obedience before his greatest works. Six days of nothing. We want proof. We want progress reports. We want, but no, no. God just says do this. So you've got the people walking around. You've got the sounding of the horns. God's invisible presence. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. Okay. Joshua, not just him, all the people get up. They greet the day. They're expectant. They're confident. They come boldly because they're ready for God to dramatically act this long-awaited moment. And so they march around seven times. Verse 16, and on the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given the city, and the city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all that are with her in her house shall be spared because they hid the spies. But keep away from devoted things so you will not bring your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So here's what happens. On the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And just before he gives the command to shout, he gives a warning. He says, people of God, this is such a holy moment. This is such a profound act of our God. I want to remind you of one thing. Everything in this city is God's. Everything is God's. You're not plundering this city. Everything will be given to the Lord because this is his glory and his act. This is a call for generosity, not greed. It is a call to keep devoted. This is a call to replace want with worship. So the question is, will the people of God obey? Well, the trumpet sounded. The army gave the shout. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave the loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Now this, of course, is one of the most profound moments in Scripture, where God himself, from beginning to middle to end, does something that is impossible. Impossible. And yet the lessons that we find in these two chapters is unbelievably significant for our church in this moment, in this season. So though I'm not feeling well and I can't yell as I usually do, listen close, please. Because I am telling you what I'm about to preach matters to this church in its next season. So first of all, let me get its full fulfillment where it should be found. And we found out this whole season in this whole series, we know that this story is a foreshadow of the one we now live in. Jesus is the better Joshua. Our promised land, which is eternal life, is better than physical land. 
Rahab the prostitute shows us that God wants to invite all people into his family and how she becomes the line and part of the line of Jesus. But let me also remind you too that the great good news we have in this church and in every church around the world is this, that when God shows up and he brings us into the promised land, he declares that our shame is over. Before I talk to you about what this means for the season of revival in our church, let me just remind you that Jesus himself rolls away our reproach. This is the gospel that we preach in this church, that we have new life and our shame and our guilt and our history. Yes, it informs our current reality, but it does not define us anymore. God has taken us out of our Egypt called sin, our Egypt called past, our Egypt called death, our Egypt called the evil one, and he makes us new. It's what Romans 10.9 says, you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and you're justified. And it's with your mouth you profess you are saved. As scripture says, anyone, anyone who believes in him shall never be what? Say it loud. No, that's not loud. Thank you. It's done. The one beautiful thing we have in our community and every church around the world, is that this is true. Our history, as we saw in that amazing testimony before, our history informs us, but our history no longer defines us because shame is removed by our God. This is the hope we have that is different than any other religion on earth. Our God says, I have no time for shame and guilt. I have removed them through my son, Jesus. That is the power that we must never forget. But that leads me now to what I really need to say to our church this morning. This whole series has been, oh God, what are you trying to teach us as you're doing things among us we've never seen, but we've been praying for for such a long time. So here's where I need to go with this. Listen very carefully, please. God has promised this church revival. Not because we are better, because he has sovereignly decided it. God has promised this church revival, which means every person that makes up this church has guaranteed renewal if they want it. It's guaranteed. And not only has he promised revival to this church, he has promised that he's going to come in Durham and have a visitation that we have never seen in our history. This is unbelievably good news of great joy for all people. But, but as more and more of us pray and more and more of us search out God and more and more of us wonder and ponder and struggle and ask God, I want to remind all of us this morning that what I have preached actually is the very journey and process a person, a family, and a church must take to actually see real revival. Where does revival really begin? It begins in the desert. Revival begins with testing and humility. So many people sing songs in churches. Oh God, I love your presence. Oh God, I want you to come in a way you've never come before. Oh God, do something we've never seen. And God says, really? Good, then I am coming in all of my power. And what's the very first thing God does to his people? He puts us in the wilderness. Let me reread Deuteronomy 8.2 to you this morning. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years 
to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart and whether or not you'd keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here's the first thing. If you truly are begging the God of heaven and earth to come in a way he has never come before in your family or in your life or in our region, the first thing our God always does because he is a God of love is he humbles us. He tests us. He comes among his people and deals with our root and our motives because if our motives are not purified by God himself, then all of our actions will be tainted and revival will not come. See, God comes and says, I will teach you dependence. I will destroy in you all human power that you think that could really bring change in you or change in your family or change in this church or change in this area. See, this is where many Christians die right here because they realize suddenly that the cost for renewal and revival and awakening is just too threatening to their lifestyle and too threatening to what they think who God is or what they want to do. See, God comes and says, if you want me to move, I will come to you and undo you at your core so that I will rebuild you so you will be used in a more profound way. See, I remind you that everything that I'm preaching on was done to people who knew God, not people who did not know God. The people in the wilderness knew God. The people in the promised land knew God, had relationship, were covenant partners, just like us. Real revival starts in deserts where God undoes us, purifies our motives. But then something springs out of that testing that is so beautiful, so pure, so wanted, so desired in the church. And here it is. Shame gets removed. See, we all intellectually as Christians believe we're saved. We all believe that we're loved by God, that God is a good father, We quote verses, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. We all say amen to that. But when God moves in significant revival, here's what happens. He moves us from places of wilderness where he undoes us and undoes our motives and teaches us absolute childlike dependence on him for real change. And then he actually brings us to this place where we don't just intellectually believe what God has said over us. We start believing what God has done in us. Shame is actually removed from us and it becomes reality. Freedom starts breaking out across the church. Jesus is loved and believed and acted upon. There is a season of freedom and a season of walking in life and the life in the full. Who wouldn't want to be part of a church where suddenly shame no longer was bigger than God? Anyone? Wilderness is the beginning and the testing to see if you really want it. And for those who say yes and choose not to die in the wilderness, God brings us into the work he has begun And shame is removed. And it doesn't matter if you're 80 or 90 or 16, 12 or in the middle. God begins to come so close that people go, oh, I am loved. I am free. I'm no longer wilderness and I'm no longer Egypt. That is not who I am anymore. And then out of that freedom, 
The next thing that always happens in a historic revival is people start taking their shoes off, metaphorically and literally. The presence of God gets so unbelievably close to Christians that we begin to understand how holy he is, how reverent he is, how powerful he is, that he's not just my buddy, buddy. Jesus is not just your homeboy. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And when Jesus gets closer to a church, people start taking off their shoes so quickly because they realize that this is not a normal season, that God is coming so close because he has decided to do something new and people desperately want to be in the presence of God where we used to say, television's more important or my iPhones are more important or my family would go, no, get me in the place where God is. I've longed for this my whole life and shoes start coming off. One, two, five, 20, hundreds and thousands. Why? Because people realize what it is to be a human being in the presence of God. From the desert, then to shame being removed, to the whole congregation starting to understand the glorified presence of God. And then this is where it moves from an internal act to an external earthquake spiritually. It is then when churches start going, oh my goodness, if this is true for me, this could be true for them out there. This could be true for my neighbor. This could be true for my atheist friend. This could be true for Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. Oh, my, my, all my neighbors, this could be for them too. And suddenly you're moved out of selfishness and churches begin to pray in ways they have never prayed before. And they walk around Jericho and start saying desperate things like, oh God, I cannot even raise my voice because I have no power. But you, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, can do this Please, we beg you, take down the walls of Durham and set people free. Do you see, though, if God doesn't deal with your... Well, well, yes, but wait. If God does not deal with your roots, you'll never pray prayers like that because they'll be selfish. See, it starts in the desert where God undoes us. And so many of you are not even willing to trust our loving God with this. And that he takes us and shame gets to removed and years of crap get removed from Christians' lives. And suddenly, suddenly the holiness of God spreads among his people. And then prayers are uttered and Jerichos start falling that we never thought in our lifetime we'd ever see. And here's the last lesson. When, not if anymore, when God does this, we can't touch God's glory. What are the devoted things that God is going to bring into this church? What are the devoted things that are going to be brought into other churches in this region when God does this more and more? And he is going to do this. People. Let me just end by saying this. When God moves more and more and more in this region, let not one of us make the fatal error of thinking that we have done this. When thousands of people fill this church and other churches, and we are at a peak season as a community because we are so celebrating hundreds of baptisms, marriages being restored, people coming back literally spiritually from the dead as drug culture dies in Durham, as people leave false religion and meet the true living Jesus, as God does something as significant as Jericho in our day, let us not in that season say, and oh, C4, look what we have done. All the people that God are going to assign this church and every other church are his devoted things 
The great thing we get to simply say is, oh God, I got to be in that generation when the walls came down and it is to you and you alone only that get all the glory and honor and praise. I'm so thankful I got to be there. Let us pray for a humility that we don't even understand we will need now for when God blesses us beyond belief. Our God is not dead. The God of Joshua is our God today. And God is inviting this church and God is inviting the church of Durham into a place and space because he has sovereignly ordained it to do something we have never seen. And I beg you, I beg you as one of your pastors, do not die in the desert. Let God do anything he must in you because when he does it, it will take place in you and in others. Let's pray together. Oh God of heaven and earth, found fully through the face of Jesus. We're so thankful for what you've already done. But oh Lord, our request is undo us, test our motives. Undo us as people. Strip away anything, any sin, any secret. Strip away all things where we think that we can truly make a significant change in this region. Second of all, Lord, I pray across this church that as this takes place, that shame would be removed from so many people in our church, that the truth of God would be translated into our everyday life. Let freedom be found in this church. I pray, oh God, that your presence would come so close that people would take off their shoes, that people would know God's presence in a way they've never experienced in their life. I pray, oh God, you'd lead our church to pray bolder prayers where we would walk around the greatest barriers in this region and ask for them to fall. And lastly, oh God, give us humility that we will need when we are so flush with victory that we will never touch the devoted things. Oh God, nothing less than your promise. We pray, oh God, this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Amen.